Hi, everybody. Welcome. <clears throat> Welcome back to the War of the Ring class. This is our second session on the War of the Ring. Now, I have to warn you in advance. I can't promise anything quite as exciting as we got last week, of course, because the stat content from the Battle of Helm's Deep was just was like still blowing my mind in retrospect days later. Uh, but um, anyway, yeah, so... Um, uh, but tonight, nevertheless, we have a bunch of really cool things to talk about. We're going to be looking at the Road to Isengard and the Flotsam and Jetsam chapter. So the the, the primary focus uh, is, well, the, the biggest section that we're going to get to uh, is looking at the wizards, looking at Gandalf and Saruman and the way that, uh, that those two are developing. You may remember, you know, we saw a bunch of really interesting early stuff, including, of course, that mind-blowing moment when, uh, when uh, Tolkien was either considering replacing the Balrog with Saruman or uh, uh, intending to, uh, I, I don't know what, make the Balrog, you know, rip off his mask and reveal that he really is Saruman in disguise. Um, but, uh, oh, oh, don't worry, Jennifer, we are going to talk about uh, pipeweed lore. That's totally going to happen. We'll get there too, uh, because that's obviously super important. Um, but anyway, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, <clears throat> we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. Anyhow, uh, uh, one, just, okay. Two, two quick announcements this week before we get going though. First, uh, tomorrow night, tomorrow night. Uh, so that's Thursday, the, what is tomorrow? The 22nd, Thursday, the 22nd at 8 30 PM Eastern time. Uh, we're going to have another episode of the Mythgard movie club, um, which is normally not hosted by me and is still not hosted by me. Um, but I am going to be appearing on it because we're going to be talking about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie. Um, you may remember when we did the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in our, the, which was the previous Mythgard Academy uh, class that we did before this one. Um, I didn't talk about the film. So several of you wanted to talk about the film, and I said, no, we're going we're gonna to wait. Uh, this is what we were waiting for. So we're going to have a panel discussion. I'm going to join in a panel discussion on the film. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So if you want to talk about the Hitchhiker's Guide movie uh, with us, again, that's tomorrow at 8.30. If you go to signumuniversity.org, scroll down just a tiny bit, and you'll see our events pages. Click on the events page for uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide movie and uh, uh, you'll get all the information, be able to register there and be all set for our discussion tomorrow. Um, anyway, so I'm really looking forward to that kind of uh, finishing, kind of closing the circle on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy stuff that we talked about before. So uh, lots of really interesting things going on in that film, uh, actually. Um, way, way more Vogon than I would have expected, let me just say. But anyway... Tomorrow night for that. Um, the one other quick announcement is a very, very simple thing just to remind everybody that I'm going to be gone next week. Um, so I'll say it again at the end, but just in case you don't make it all the way to the end, wanted to make sure to mention that at the front too here, that uh, I'll be out of town next week. In fact, I'll be out of contact entirely. I'm going off the grid next week. It's going to be fun. Uh, so I won't be around, but we will be back uh, the week after that first week of March. Uh, for uh, for session number three, and I should be around for the whole month of March, I believe. So that'll be fun. Um, so anyway, just to just to uh, to remind you of uh, of that uh, of that happening. Okay, first tonight. I want to go back. There's just a few things from Helm's Deep that we didn't quite get to finish. A few odds and ends that I want to finish up. First, two items on the Dunlendings, or rather the Westfold men, the wild men of Westfold. When, of course, Westfold in this initial conception is not 
a part of the mark, but the part of the lands next to the mark, right? The part Westfold meant that place just to the west of the mark, uh, not populated uh, by the Rohirrim. Uh, so, and this is, uh, of course, the passage on uh, uh, that mentions uh, what that you know one of the very, very few uh, instances we get of Dunlending language for Goyle, right? I hear them, said Amir, but they are only as the scream of birds and the bellowing of beasts to my ears. But among them are many that cry in the tongue of Westfold, later changed to in the Dunland tongue, said Aragorn, and that is a speech of men, and once was accounted good to hear. True words you speak, said Gamling, who had climbed now on the wall. I know that tongue. It is ancient, and once was spoken in many valleys of the mark, but now it is used in deadly hate. They shout rejoicing in our doom. The king, the king, they cry. We will take their king. Death to the foregoyle. Death to the strawheads. Death to the robbers of the north. Such names they have for us. Not in half a thousand years have they forgot their grievance that the lords of Gondor gave the mark to Eorl the Young as a reward for his service to Elendil and Isildur while they were held back. It is this old hatred that Saruman has inflamed. Okay. Now, first... We, there are some interesting kind of side points here, right? But the first thing I want to focus on is the status of the Westfold men, of the Dunlendings, of course, as they will later be, uh, and how that relationship is so, is is conceived, right? Um, Aragorn, first, is the first one to acknowledge it, which, of course, doesn't happen in the published text, Um Aragorn says, it is a speech of men, and once was accounted good to hear. So, uh, he hears the, Amir hears the cries, but he's not sure, like, uh, like, it's just his orc speech, but he's sort of dismissive, right? And so Aragorn is making the distinction here, I think, uh, that's, uh, um, my understanding, if I'm understanding this properly, the reason Aragorn says that is a speech of men is to specify... Hang on, okay. So there is this wild cacophony of hating, hateful language, you know, being, uh, being sent up in our direction. Uh, but it's not all orc speech, right? It's, it's not all, uh, you know, Aemir's uh, rather sort of dismissal of the whole thing, right? It's just like the scream of birds and the bellowing of beasts, and Aragorn's like, okay, well, sort of, but... Um, but not all of it, right? One of it, uh, some of those cries are a speech of men. And not only does he emphasize that it's men's speech and not orc speech, he goes on to say, and once it was accounted good to hear, which is an interesting thing to say. And I, I'm not 100% sure whether he means that in a purely linguistic, you know, from a purely linguistic standpoint, that is to say, like that that the language is itself in some way appealing and euphonious right like it's 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 a pleasant language to hear or does is this a sort of a cultural comment right that uh that it was once welcome right that that there were previously good relations in some sense maybe or you know that um there was once peace and friendship with the people who spoke that tongue, and, you know, therefore it, people used to look forward to hearing it, right? I, I'm not sure exactly um, if that's sort of purely uh, purely uh, uh, linguistic, that particular comment by Aragorn, um, or if he's looking back to the time before the feud. Because, of course, remember, one of the interesting points here in interjecting Aragorn into this conversation, of course, this is ju- it's just gambling who says those things uh, in the published text. Um, but 
by introducing Aragorn, we have two different perspectives, right? Gambling is referring back to sort of the dis- the most distant reference from Gambling's perspective is the half a thousand years ago, right? The 500 years ago uh, when the men of Westfold were displaced, right? That the lords of Gondor uh, gave the mark to Aerol the Young, right? Um, that's So the last 500 years are his framework, and it's like they haven't forgotten from, from the way distant past. Aragorn would seem to be uh, suggesting way, way back, right? Um, before that, that is recalling the time before the grievance happened, when there was peace, and it was good to hear the language, you know, the tongue of Westfold, um, that they were, that they used to be friends before this. And that would also explain, that would also be a really interesting kind of context to Aragorn's distinction here. Right. No, 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 not just the scream of birds and the bellowing of beasts. Right. There's a tongue of men there. And what's more, you know, there's kind of an unfortunate history there. Uh, and the, these people are not only humans, but they used to be our allies. Um, so that's that's kind of interesting. Uh, the perspective that he gives the sort of longer historical perspective that Aragorn exactly Kate as an as heir of the Numenorians kind of gives on that. Right. Um but um, so, yeah, Tony, it does imply, I mean, if we're reading that right, it does imply that the Dunlendings were once the the allies of the Numenorians. Um, and so what happened? Their grievance is that the Lords of Gondor gave the mark to Aerol the Young as a reward while they were held back. What does that mean? While they were held back. They who? Held back from what? By whom? I'm not sure I understand that sentence. Hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I just realized I didn't understand that sentence. It's one of those things I read over several times and I'm now only just realizing that I don't understand it. Um... While they, the Dunlin, if they is the Dunlendings, let's just still call them the Dunlendings because it's less confusing. Um, if he's saying the Lords of Gondor gave the mark to Errol the Young while the Dunlendings were held back, because they served him while the Dunlendings were held back. So the Errol the Young steps in and helps the Lords of Gondor where the Dunlendings did not. And so for that reason, the Lords of Gondor say, I'm giving the mark to you guys and not you guys, so that they failed, the Dunlendings failed to hold up their side of the bargain, right? Do we have, is there some concept of a, you know, so there's the Oath of Aeoral, right? Establishing the positive alliance, right? The positive pledge and the the history of successful, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, aid in time of need from the Rohirrim. And counterbalancing that with an act of failure, kind of Oathbreaker-ish, right? But it doesn't sound nearly as harsh as the Oathbreakers, right? And they're not doomed. And they didn't seem to to actually break their... Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, Yana's wondering if it could be a preview of the Oathbreakers. Yeah, exactly, Yana. It's just what I was thinking. Um, interesting. Now, Carrie is suggesting... Carrie, it's an interesting suggestion. Okay, Carrie says, isn't it... Um, 
Let's see, hang on. So what was held back after the Dunlendings had... Oh, hmm. Not in half a thousand years. Okay, that the Lords of Gondor gave the mark to Earl the Young as a reward for his service while they were held back. No, I don't think it can be just like that they're holding back the the reward from the Dunlendings. Just sort of an arbitrary choice on their part. The they... The antecedent of they in that sentence would seem to... It would have to be either the Dunlendings, which is not the immediate antecedent, right? Uh, or Elendo and Isildur, right? While they, Elendo and Isildur, were held back. So that Errol the Young came... I don't know by whom or in what kind. I don't know exactly the holding back. I don't understand in that context. Were they being held back in some way so that there was some... Are we descri- Are we alluding to some kind of you know, strategic moment in the, you know, in the War of the Last Alliance when Elendo and Isildur were supposed to come in and they were held back and it looked like disaster was going to come and then Aeor the Young comes and pulls their biscuits out of the fire? Is that how we're supposed to understand that? Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, uh yeah, I mean, I think that they, Carrie, I, I kind of think that they has to be either the Dunlendings or Elendo and Isildur. Like, I think that that second version I was just doing where Elendo and Isildur are kind of held back in some way uh, um, could work, but it, it it's a little elusive, right? I mean, it's like a little hard to figure that out. Um, yeah. Um yeah, I agree, Carrie. Whichever it is, the Dunlendings definitely feel slighted, right? They definitely feel ill-done by. Um, I'd like to think, of course, that the Lords of Gondor gave the reward for some kind of justifiable reason, right? Not just out of pure favoritism, like, you know, Errol the Young looked a lot more dashing on his horse, you know, and so therefore, let's give him the mark and, and, and let's shaft the Dunlendings. Um, that's why, like, while they were they were held back, so the Dunlendings failed to come to their aid where Errol the Young succeeded to come to their aid. Um, uh, but in any case, they um, um, they feel ill done by the Dunlendings do. Um, so that two different factors here. One, the suggestion is that I, if I'm understanding this passage at all properly, the suggestion is that there was a reason, right? Like that the the that what we do have is something like Mike exactly as you suggest something like the jealousy of Cain right um, you know that you have the two peoples the Dunlendings and the Rohirrim the Rohirrim do well right and the Dunlendings do poorly it's hard to tell exactly the circumstances right but one proves themselves a more stalwart ally than the others and uh, and so therefore the Lords of Gondor say we're given this land to those who succeeded, you know, to those who did well, and, you know, the others, uh, like, I'm sorry, you know, you lost your place in line. That's... I, I, now, remember, note that that's already different from the published version. In the published version, um, the Lords of Gondor give the mark to Aeorl the Young because it had been sparsely peopled, right? So they're 
are people there, um, but there is a le- there is a less explicit displacement. And so I actually have to say, in the published version, it makes the Dunlending's perspective a little harder to understand. Like it's harder for me to parse the background in the published text um, because the the that we're told. Uh, explicitly, that it was because there because there were not very many people that that the Rohirrim were invited in. Um, in other words, people aren't being displaced, right? That's the point. Um, but yet the Dunlendings clearly feel that that land was theirs, and so it's like, why do they feel that if they weren't really there in the first place, or if there were very few of them there, and and it's not even obvious that they were displaced? That would explain somebody was asking about this earlier on. Um, why is it that gambling speaks the language? Well, that's why, right? Uh, gambling says that uh, uh, it's it's spoken, right? In the Westfold, when Westfold is part of the mark, right, um, there are many people who speak the Dunlending language. In other words, there, there are still Dunlendings, you know, cultural Dunlendings, people who are descended from the Dunlendings who still live there, right? And I take that to, to suggest... Uh, as suggesting that the sparse population of Kalanarthan, who were there originally, who presumably were the ancestors of the Dunlendings, weren't necessarily displaced. Um, they were subjected to Errol the Young, right? He was given lordship over that area. Um, but I don't think they were necessarily packed off the land, necessarily, um, because they're still there in the Westfold. Um uh anyway so um uh anyhow like i said i actually kind of have a hard time understanding in some ways the published text here it's a little clearer it's a little harsher but it's a little clearer right that there was a definite choice uh we could give this we could we could award this land to the Dunlendings or the Rohirrim, we choose the Rohirrim because they have done well and the Dunlendings did poorly, however exactly that fell out. Um, And yet there still is... And notice Gambling's comment about the language, right? Uh, Not in half a thousand years have they forgot... Oh, wait, no, no, not before that. Uh, Yeah, it is ancient and once was spoken in many valleys of the Mark. It's not anymore, right? Um... So, yeah, he still knows it, apparently, I guess, presumably from encounters with the, the Westfold men, a.k.a. A- a- the Dunlendings. Um, but um, uh, but he does not suggest that it's a living language in the Mark anymore. Anyway, the last point, of course, is the one I've been sc- politely skipping over this whole time, the big, huge, enormous point that I've been not deliberately not talking about because I wanted to uh, to try to focus a little bit. And that's the fact that the Lords of Gondor and Quaid is not Curian the Steward, but Elendil and Isildur themselves. And that the battle in which Errol the Young comes down, uh, the, you know, the battle in which Gondorian biscuits are pulled out of the fire by Errol the Young is not the battle of the field of Celebrant, but the battle of the last alliance, right? Um, that's uh, wild, <laughs> right? Uh, that's that's uh, kind of interesting. Um, and it it clearly suggests that Tolkien was considering a, a rather extreme compression of the timeline of the Third Age, right? This is 
Uh, I, I mean, I, as I recall, I think that we've seen some evidence of this before. Um, I don't think this is the first uh, the first piece of evidence we've had uh, to suggest to suggest this trend, um, but it's um, really interesting, right? Um, and yeah, Kate, you're absolutely right. One of the one of the consequences of this is thinking about how close this puts Aragorn to Elendil. That's a really wonderful point. If it's only been five hundred years since the death of Elendil, right? Um, then, then what? Aragorn is how many, right? Maybe, you know, Kate's guessing maybe ten generations uh, from, uh, uh, from Elendil himself. That, even based on... Uh, even based on what, so yeah, Brian's a great question. Brian is following it up by saying, like, what is the third age timeline that would need to be compressed at this point? And that's a really great point, Brian. The primary thing, right, that. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say the only thing that we have um, that really lies between the War of the Ring and the War of the Last Alliance is the history of Gondor, the stuff from the Council of Elrond, right, about how the Numenorians were ruling in Gondor, and then the Gondorians kicked them out, and then they, the Numenorians, went north, and they set up their new kingdom, uh, Norbury, right, uh, which became their capital, but then that fell, and so now they're a wandering people. So we, you know, we, 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 those things all still need to happen. Um, Ten generations ish right 10 10 to 15 generations however many it it actually is um that's pretty rapid for that number of events right um it's um it's quite possible and yet veronica i agree with the longevity of the numenorians it seems quite likely that they would be um that there could be even fewer. Fifteen is is high, right? It might be ten generations or fewer. That to me is the hardest thing, right? And you know how would he fit that in? And I'm not really sure. Um, my, if I had to guess, my guess is that the reason that he's connecting Errol the Young to Elendo and Isildur is that he is wanting to establish a, the parallel, right? We are, remember. We've already had indicators that we're going to get the horsemen coming in in a catastrophic intervention at the battle in Gondor, right? When he was doing outlines, which we were reading at the end of the Treason of Isengard, we already saw the, the hints of that. Remember the horns, right? That, that, that image of the horns in the distance was one of the first things that emerged uh, there in that whole concept. Um, so the concept of the horns of the, of the Rohirrim and their, uh, you know, their, their, their arrival at or what appears to be beyond the last minute uh, to help to save, that's already a concept, right? And so when he now gets to talking about Aeorl the Young, uh, and the origins of the mark, he wants to establish a parallel, which he, which is the, a thing he does all the time, right? And so it's not, it is a very, uh, it is a very common trope for Tolkien to have that kind of parallel, 
right? Aerol the North, uh, Aerol the Young coming down from the North uh, to the to to Dagorlad to give a you catastrophic assistance to Elendil and Isildur. Uh, so we've got the big characters, Errol the Young, Elendil, Isildur, right? Uh, and then we have the same thing happening in sort of smaller scale in a later age, right? With Theoden leading the Rohirrim down to Minas Tirith or to Daggerlad again, to the Black Gate, potentially. Remember, that was where the big battle was going um, uh, to be. Uh, to to uh, once again help, uh, you know, this time Aragorn and, uh, and the Lords of Gondor there. So that could totally work, right? Um, that would be fine, except um, you know, it makes it challenging, right? It makes it challenging to have to compress everything. What makes me uh, uh, what makes me curious about this is why 500 years, Right? To some extent, my question is not why Elendil and Isildur, but why 500 years? Does he, does he, th- I mean, if, if, if he stretches out, because that's all he needs to do, right? Just make the Rohirrim have been there in the mark for more than 500 years, right? Bob's your uncle. He's all set. Um, but, uh, but, he, but he's, he seems to be fixed on the 500 years. Um, he doesn't want the mark to have been settled for as long as that. Uh, is it because, I hear wild speculation now, um, would the problem be that he wants the Gondorian society to be ancient, right? And the ancient society with ancient ties and the Rohiric society to be younger, to be newer. Um, maybe. I don't know. Um, yeah, Tony, maybe it is because the War of the Jewels was 500 years. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Um, and you're right, um, Brian, that lots of events do get squeezed into 500 years during the War of the Jewels in the First Age, but but it's a different kind of thing, right? It's not like cultural shifts and the rise and fall of empires. It's, you know, uh, a series of battles and the progressive takeover of, you know, a continent by the forces of evil, right, until the final reversal at the end. Um, That could easily happen in 500 years, but having, you know, the rain and the growth and flowering of Gondor and the Numenorians get kicked out and then the growth of another kingdom and the fall of that other kingdom and then that's harder, I think, to fit into 500 years. Um, Whereas, again, the, the other is just a totally different kind of action. But, but anyway, so, uh, certainly one of your potentially mind-blowing images today is the idea of Aeorl the Young coming to the rescue of Elendil and Isildur, which I find really fun to think about. You know, I don't want to, you know, cast aspersions on, you know, on, uh, Kyrian the steward, but that's kind of cooler, right? Uh, not that I grudge it, but anyway, okay. Here's the other really interesting passage about the Dunlendings, a.k.a. the Westfold men. Um, the notes, the outline that he wrote uh, about the encounter between Aragorn and the captain of Westfold at the gates. Aragorn and the captain of Westfold. Westfolder says, if the king is yielded, all may go alive. Where to? To Isengard. Then the West March is to be given back to us and all the something land. Who says so? Saruman. That is indeed a good warrant. Aragorn rebukes Westfolder for aiding orcs. Westfolder is humbled. 
Orc Captain Jeers. Needs must accept the terms when no others will serve. We are the Uruk High. We slay. Orcs shoot an arrow at Aragorn as they retreat, but the Westfold Captain hews down the archer. Okay. Um. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Right. Okay. Tony, you're right that the rise and fall of the Roman Empire is something like 500 years. I mean, they would call it a thousand years, but even even granting that. Yeah, but we're, we're talking about twice, right? Rise and fall of Gondor, rise and fall of Arnor, uh, and then sometime after that, so that Aragorn is, you know, is his, uh, yeah, it's still harder, I think. Okay. Um, this... Uh, James says, uh, suggests this is some of the same tone that we can see in the in the mouth of Sauron uh, scene later on. Yeah, I can see some uh, some kind of uh, similarities there, um, with the difference, as Tony was pointing out, that obviously the captain is swayed, right? Um, the position we don't get this kind of distinction between the Dunlendings and the Orcs. Not this kind. We do get a distinction, right? They're treated differently in the, ba- in the published Battle of Helm's Deep. Um, especially, of course, by their treatment after the battle, right? The Dunlendings who surrender are pardoned and surprised to be pardoned, um, where, of course, none of the Orcs escape because they all run into the forest and are destroyed uh, one and all by the Huorns. But, um, but anyway... Um, so it's not that they're treated identically or, or just absolutely lumped in together. Um, but this is a kind of distinction that we don't get. Um, the fact that not only are the languages different, right, as we can hear, as you know, Aragorn points out, but morally they're quite different. Um, it begins with the Westfold, or with the Dunlending captain, offering himself terms of surrender, Right. Um, he's not gonna. He's not gonna kill them all, right? This is. They're. They're not interested. The Dunlendings are not interested in just slaughtering everybody. Everybody else may go alive. Surrender your king, and everybody else can go alive. Um, uh, to Isengard, right? So, I mean, yeah, they'll be like enslaved and stuff. But you know, there's some mercy being offered here. Terms are being off- terms of surrender are being offered, um, which of course does not happen in the uh, the published Battle of Helm's Deep. Um, and he, that is the Dunlending, I'm still going to call them Dunlendings, just to avoid confusion. Then the Dunlending captain refers to the, explains, points explicitly to the promise that he's been given. Right? The West March is to be given back to us. And all the something land, the rest of the land, or whatever, right? Presumably the whole mark is going to be given to them. And who says so? That's got to be Aragorn responding, right? So Aragorn challenges the captain of the Dunlendings on two fronts, right? First. So, um, how do you know? Right? You're attacking because you were promised that you'd get the land? Uh, you sure? Did you get that in writing? Right? You sure about that? That is indeed a good warrant, I believe, says Aragorn, and I'm quite sure, sarcastically. Right? Um, and he's pointing out, like, okay, so, uh, Mr. Dunlending captain, you know you're being played here. Right? You know you're probably being suckered. You can't trust Saruman. Right, so that's the first uh, uh, level of interaction here between Aragorn and the Dunlending captain. 
And then he takes it one step further and rebukes him, rebukes him for aiding orcs or allying himself with orcs. Why are you fighting next to these orcs, right? Um, uh, you know, don't you realize, you know, my good Dunlending, that you've made yourself one of the bad guys? And the Westfolder is humbled. He, we have like this moment of repentance, right? And that's uh, kind of amazing, right? That's a really cool touch, and we can see that it's that it's genuine when the orc, of course, doing orcish things, shoots an arrow at Aragorn. He strikes him. He hews him down, right, uh, to punish him for breaking the truce. So we see that Aragorn has succeeded in driving at least some kind of wedge between the Dunlendings and the Orcs, whom Saruman has has brought together. In any case, clearly the overall consequence, right, the overall uh, uh, significance in the end uh, of this concept is to recuperate the Dunlendings, right? They come across looking much better. Um, All we get in the published text... Um, all we get in the published text is the Dunlendings being surprised that they're not being slaughtered, right? There we get, like, we see them realizing that Saruman has lied to them, right? Because Saruman told them that, you know, the the Rohirrim burned their captives alive and stuff. So, like, they've been told that the Rohirrim are horrible people, Right uh, and uh, and and you know and and are completely merciless. So they realize that they've been deceived and that the Rohirrim are kind of good guys after all. Right, we still get that in the published text, but it is nothing like as dramatic as this. Yana, I agree. This is a this is a really cool touch, and I do also kind of wish we'd gotten this. I mean, it's hard because the scene with Aragorn at the gate and his the, the parley of Aragorn at the gate is pretty awesome in the published text, and I I wouldn't want to lose it. Um, But this element... uh, And Mike, that's a really great point. Mike Moore points out that the rebuke is a a very kingly act, right? Um, And it puts... Mike, of course, it recalls to me the whole relationship of the Lords of Gondor to the Dunlendings in the first place, right? Um, First they did wrong... I guess, or fell short somehow uh, in the War of the Last Alliance. And now, my friends, you have gone one step further, several steps further. Right now you're allying yourself with orcs. Shame on you, former friends of ours, right? It's not too late. Uh, You can still turn and, uh, you know, rejoin the good guys. And that's that's great. I, I really like that. Um, yeah, Tony, that's a great way of saying it. Tony points out that in the final version, the emphasis is on the nobility of the Rohirrim, not on the repentance of the Dunlendings. And that is where the focus is here, right? As well as, as Mike points out, on the the sort of kingly authority of Aragorn and sort of moral authority of Aragorn, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So I, this is, it's... The, and these two passages together really contribute a lot to kind of inform my understanding of at least Tolkien's initial concept about the Dunlendings, right? Um, and uh, their relationship with the Rohirrim and, of course, also with Gondor. So, fascinating passage. One last Helm's Deep point, and then we're moving on. Um, 
the riddling words. So you may remember from the Treason of Isengard that when uh, in the White Rider chapter, when Gandalf conveys the riddling words from Galadriel to Legolas, it was um, not super clear what he was talking about, right? That 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 verse which we get there at the end. Um, Greenleaf, Greenleaf, bearer of the elven bow, far beyond Mirkwood, many trees on earth grow. Thy last shaft, when thou hast shot under strange trees, shalt thou go. Um, we now see that prophecy being fulfilled here at the bat, right after the Battle of Helm's Deep, right? Uh, lastly, at the end of the chapter, Legolas, seeing the strange wood beyond Helm's Dyke, said, This is wizardry indeed. Greenleaf, Greenleaf, when thy last shaft is shot under strange trees, shalt thou go. Come, I would look on this forest, Elvis, ere the spell changes. So he cites the verse, re- recognizing that it's being fulfilled, right? Um, so the miraculous end of the battle is for Legolas the fulfillment of the, what, promise? Right? That Galadriel has made? I mean, one of the things, of course, that we see uh, in the difference between Galadriel's words to Legolas in this early version and in the final version is that the later one is a warning, right? It's a caution. Um, You know, beware lest this thing happen to you, lest you be changed uh, in this way. Um, And here, it's merely a promise. And he's delighted to recognize the fulfillment of it. When thy la- when thy last shaft is shot under strange trees, shalt thou g- shalt thou go, right? Um, so Galadriel. Uh, so first of all, we see. Remember the business about the the gulls, right? Um, is merely foretelling um, Legolas's you know, attachment to uh, the sea, right? The fact that the sea longing is going to be stirred up in him. And in a sense, that doesn't take a lot of whole, uh, uh, too much predicting, right? Uh, that's not a really radical prediction on Goadriel's part. You just kind of have to know elves pretty well, which, you know, Goadriel does, uh, in order to... to suggest to Legolas that uh, if ever you, you know, uh, you know, when you hear the cry of the gulls on the shore, uh, thy heart shall then rest in the forest no more. Um, yeah, because c- she's seen that play out before, right? So she cautions him of this. So there is a sense, of course, in which there's still a pr- a, an implicit prediction, right? She predicts that he's going to, he's going to go down to Pilargir, which is where uh, he hears the gulls and has the, and has the, pro- and has the, uh, 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 you know, and, and experiences uh, the fulfillment of the prophecy. It does, set, Veronica. It does sound more like a prophecy of death. Um, the original one does. Um, here, it's first of all promising or uh, looking towards a, a slightly more cataclysmic event. Right, I, the Battle of Pelargir is still a big deal. I'm not trying to say it's not a big deal. But the gulls don't play any role in it, right? It's not predicting anything about the battle. Just the fact that Legolas is going to get down to the sea, right? Um, here, the strange trees are, of course, the whole, like, punchline of the battle, right? I mean, that is the eucatastrophe that ends the uh, the battle in the end. So, um, it's... it's uh, 
she's directly predicting that with the reference to the to the strange trees, and it's couched as a promise to Legolas. Even when thy last shaft, when thou hast shot, right? The implication being, when things look bad, right? When it looks like you are at the end of your resources, uh, and you know uh, you're facing the worst, and you're cornered and helpless. You will go under strange trees, right? It's it's a it's sort of like a prophecy of deliverance, right? Um, so it's all kinds of cheerful in that way, and of course the strange trees, right? Who doesn't love strange trees, Jennifer? Exactly as you say, uh, strange trees. What a what a what a delightful prophecy for an elf, right? Just like the glittering caves for 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 dwarves, absolutely. Um, so. Uh, so it's a completely different context. And Mike, that's a really interesting connection. It is almost like the words of the seer to Reepicheep, uh, uh, you know, when the waves uh, uh, are sweet, right? Yeah. Um, uh, it's not exactly the same, but it certainly begins to be more kind of in that vein than than the more um, sort of gloomy and doom-ridden prophecy of, uh, uh, of the... the um, of the you know of the published text for Legolas and uh, and uh, Mike of course you're right that it's not the um, uh, it's not the, the last sh- sh- uh, shaft he'll ever shoot in his life right but at the time he doesn't know that right again that's one of the re- reassuring things about the prophecy uh, you know right before the dawn it kind of looked like it might be the end at Helm's Deep right um, yeah yeah. But anyway, um, so I just I thought this was really interesting to see, uh, not just, of course, the, not just to sort of close the circle on Legolas's prophecy, you know, the, the, the changed prophecy that we saw uh, in the Treason of Isengard, um, but just to see how this affirms the nature of, of the, the, you know, the, the very strikingly different nature of this, uh, of this prophecy by Galadriel. Okay, uh, so... We're, we're totally done with Helm's Deep now. Uh, two passages I want to look at on the theme of Tolkien's writing process. I think that there are a couple things, a couple passages that I found very revealing. Um, nothing totally revolutionary. These are all things, both of these are things that we've seen before, but I thought it was worth pausing for a second to note. Um, just learning more about how Tolkien's mind works. It's what's for me, it's one of the fascinating things about reading this stuff um, is I feel like in the last two volumes in, uh, in the history of the Lord of the Rings, I feel like, you know, we have, I've learned more in studying these two things about how Tolkien's mind works and how his creative process works than I've learned in anything else that we've read and studied. So, um, this is a, a, a passage talking about the chapter divisions, and we've seen lots of things like this, right? Christopher Tolkien says something almost exactly like this at the beginning of almost every chapter, right? Um, but I wanted to pause and just think about it, because, uh, it's again, it's a pattern that we've seen, but the frequency of it actually is part of the point, right? And I think if we pause and think about it, it's kind of revealing. Okay. The first completed manuscript of The Road to Isengard was originally continuous with Chapter 28, The Battle of Helm's Deep. 
But I think that the division was introduced at a fairly early stage, with a new chapter numbered 29, beginning with the meeting of Gandalf and Theoden beside the Deeping Stream after the Battle of Hornburg. The first completed manuscript of 29, of which the original title was To Isengard, ran on without break through the later Flotsam and Jetsam and the voice of Saruman, but a division between 29 and 30, Flotsam and Jetsam, was made before it was completed. 30 then included the later voice of Saruman as well. A very rough and difficult outline for this part of the story, in fact, begins at the end of The Road to Isengard and the chapter was then expressly to end with the return to Edoras. Okay, so uh, this is all a little bit confusing, but but here's the sort of the basic gist, right? The basic gist is he always bites off more than he can chew in writing chapters, right? He has an outline. We've seen all of his outlines, right? And and I love talking about his outlines. So we've seen him kind of map things out in advance uh, and kind of figure out the story. Um but when he and you'll remember the sort of the jokes that we were making of that big outline that he made uh, in the second half of the Treason of Isengard. Remember that one chapter, one chapter, one chapter, and it's so delightful because we know that all those things that he's labeling one chapter, we know that in reality it's going to take him like four or five chapters to do each one, right? Um, but this is what this is what always happens, right? So when he sets out to write, when he when he you know actually sets sail with his prose, right? He has a plan, but his plan is very general, right? Um, so he's thinking, okay, Battle of Helm's Deep. He decides um, fairly quickly, right? So originally, the road to Isengard was continuous with the Battle of Helm's Deep, but pretty quickly he's like, okay, hang on. I, I better I better start a chapter here, right? So, so he decides. So, what's the chapter after the Battle of Helm's Deep going to be originally? What's his plan? His plan is okay. In this chapter, they're they're going to leave Helm's Deep. They're going to go to Isengard, confront Saruman, learn about how the Ents have destroyed Isengard, and then he's going to go back to Edoras, right? And that doesn't sound totally unrealistic, right? That could absolutely be a chapter if you told it like that, right? Um, but he doesn't. Of course, it 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 grows and expands. So we have you know the road to Isengard, and then he gets halfway through Flotsam and Jetsam, right? All the stories that they're telling, and oh, we want to talk about pipeweed and all this other stuff, right? And so that halfway through that, he realizes, oh, okay, this is too long, right? I better break it up. So he starts a new chapter with Flotsam and Jetsam. But notice again, he's like, well, obviously this, right? Okay, right. So for here, we'll get them to Edoras, right? Now, now we're not going to get them to Edoras, right? Uh, we have to have then another chapter. So we break it up from to Isengard, Flotsam and Jetsam, and then the voice of Saruman, and then. They still don't get to Edoras by the end of it. Um, uh, and exactly, of course, the uh, um, Kate, just the line, of course, that I was remembering too, the very opening line of his pro, of his preface, right? This tale grew in the telling. And we see that happen again and again and again. It's just, I find it so delightful to see how these, these stories, how these elements of the story just get discovered as he goes along, right? Uh, he, he's got the plan, he's got the outline, but it never goes according to plan because once he actually gets down on the ground and starts to see it unfold, all these things start happening that he wasn't expecting and didn't originally plan, right? So, and that seems to be the balance, right? Of planning ahead, 
right? Having a plan for the story, and he's following the plan for the story, right? It's just not unfolding like he meant to. Um, In other words, Tolkien's chapter plans are exactly like me and my slides in class. It's it's almost exactly the same thing, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. And Jennifer, you're absolutely right. He's paying such close attention to timeline and geography, too, that, you know, these details get worked out not in advance, right? But as he's writing, as he's actually working through the story. And then, of course, often it has to get changed and ironed out afterwards. But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I just, I, I thought it was, it was kind of worth acknowledging that this is, uh, this is a really fun way to see that happening. And again, just how many times, how many times in Return of the Shadow, Treason of Isengard, and the War of the Ring now have we seen Christopher Tolkien start a chapter like this, right? By saying, this chapter continued originally without break from the previous chapter, right? Um, and then he only figures out later on, hey, this is a new chapter, isn't it? Okay, the other point I wanted to make, this one is even cooler, about Orthanc. One draft. This was Orthanc, the citadel of Saruman, the name of which has double meaning, by design or chance. For in the tongue of the mark, Orthanc signified cunning craft, invention, machines such as those have who fashion machines. But in the elvish speech, it means the stony heart, tormented hill. The original text of the first completed manuscript, following description B, has, For in the language of the mark, Orthanc signified cunning craft, but in the elvish speech, it means stone fang. To this, cloven hill was added subsequently, when the conception of the great cleft in the basal cone arose. Following the description D of that conception, the statement about the meaning of the name is the final form, for in the elvish speech, Orthanc signifies Mount Fang, but in the language of the Mark of Old, the cunning mind. It may be, therefore, that the translation Mount Fang actually arose in association with the description of the cone as cloven into two great fangs. Okay, now there are three elements that are involved in this, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the evolution of the description of Orthanc, right? We have his physical description of the tower itself, right? That is, we, you know, we, we're uh, f- his verbal description of the physical layout of the of the tower, right? We have his illustrations, his drawings, uh, his different sketches of the Tower of Orthanc, and we have the linguistic element, right? The double meaning of Orthanc. Um, now. Notice the that element, or half of the uh, of the orthonk of the linguistic stuff remains stable, right? Orthonk signifies cunning craft or invention, the cunning craft or cunning mind, right? That's because it's what it actually means in Anglo-Saxon, right? Orthonk, the thunk part of it is like think, it's thinking, right? It's about the the mind. Um, uh, so Orthanc, the cunning, the cunning mind is is sort of the most literal translation of it. Cunning craft or invention certainly fits there too. Um, so his translation of Orthanc in the tongue of the Mark is consistent in all three versions here, um, because again, 
Anglo-Saxon. That's what it actually means. But notice, of the three things, right? Let's just kind of back this up a second. Imagine, before you'd read this, you were told, Tolkien is sort of juggling these three things, right? His written description of a physical piece of landscape, his artistic drawings of that same landscape, and his uh, his philology, right? His linguistic history of names, right? Derived from names. Um, which came first? If we had to guess, right? If you're just told, like, okay, he's got he's juggling all three of these things. Which one came first? Which one determined the outcome, right? Um, he's got all these three things that kind of need to fit together. Which one is he accommodating to the others, if you see what I mean, right? Um, and the answer to which one comes... F- see, Evan, I would have guessed that too. Um, I also would have guessed that it was the language which came first, right? Um this is sort of the mythos, right? Um, that his stories are primarily linguistic in origin, right? And the Elvish languages, uh, it, when he, you know, uses that quote that I was just, you know, the primarily linguistic in origin quote, he's talking about the Elvish languages, right? That the stories emerge primarily in order to give the necessary background of history for Elvish tongues, right? Um But that's not what happens, right? Now, Tony, you're absolutely right. He he can't change the Anglo-Saxon translation, but he does adapt the Elvish. Now, that's on the one hand, you can say that obviously that makes a lot of sense, right? We have an external, you know, there is a real meaning for Orthanc and Anglo-Saxon, and he sticks to it faithfully. Um, whereas Elvish is in his control, he can make it mean anything he wants in Elvish, right? But hang on a second, just think of the significance of that. What we're saying there is that it's working exactly the opposite of how Evan and I would have guessed that it worked, right? He's not writing stories to give a necessary background of history to Elvish tongues. He is freely changing the Elvish tongue in order to accommodate it to the picture that he drew of Orthanc, right? Now, the interaction between the words and the pictures are a little bit complicated, right? It's not a hundred percent picture first. Um, there seems, especially in those early pictures, like Orthonk 1 to Orthonk 2, it seemed, based on the evidence, the, the, based on the way that Christopher presented it, it sounded like he had the concept in the description, and then he changed, he did another sketch to illustrate what the thing he had just written looked like. So, uh, however, the whole cloven base and the about fang thing seems to have come from those drawings seem to have come first so there seems to be some kind of give and take between his description uh his 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 verbal conception of how the thing looks and his the pictures that he's drawn of how the thing looks so there seems to be kind of cross fertilization but it doesn't seem to me that there is any question that of the three things, the words, the pictures, 
and the language, the Elvish language, the Elvish language is a distant third, right? It's the one that's being changed willy-nilly to accommodate whatever his conception that he's working out in his descriptions and his drawings, right? Um, and that's, uh, that's really interesting to me, right? I don't want to make too much of this, uh, you know, and try to draw like big, huge conclusions. It's just a little point that I found really interesting and which I think is an important thing to keep in mind, right? It's always so easy to kind of latch on to an idea about Tolkien and how he thinks and kind of just project it all, you know, so like, okay, it's always language first with Tolkien, right? If he, if he has an Elvish name for something, it's because like he already had that Elvish word, right? That Elvish word that he had is like the foundation, uh, you know, on which the story is being built, right? No, in fact, um, we see him very freely willing to change the significance of that, you know, the same word, orthunk, um, which means quite different things. Tormented hill, stone fang, or mount fang, right? Um, now, obviously, there's not a huge difference between mount fang and stone fang, right? Um, but tormented hill... It's different. And again, it's not like he's changing it from black to white or something like that. But it's a fairly, um, it's a fairly interesting shift, right? Um, I think anyway that it's that it, it shows him being sort of creative in what he's going to make the you know the elvish stand for there. Um, and I, again, like Evan, I would never have guessed that it was the elvish that is in a sense in in a sense most fluid right, of all of them, and the one that's kind of following up in the rear. Um, again, even th- that last sentence, right? It may be, therefore, that the translation Mount Fang actually arose in association with the description of the cone as cloven into two great fangs, right? And if that's true, then in that case, we had picked sketch first, then description of the sketch, in which he appealed to the image, right, the visual, um, the visual metaphor of two great fangs and then decided that that's what the Elvis sh- should mean. Um, and that sequence picture description, then Elvish language is just, I wouldn't necessarily have guessed that. Uh, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's kind of cool. It's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I I agree, Josiah. He does do this kind of stuff a lot. That he goes through multiple meanings, even for names like Luthien. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. It it's good to be reminded that his sense of how the Elvish languages work and what the words in them mean is much more fluid than we might assume, right? Um, It's good to take seriously Tolkien's claims that it starts with the languages, right? And that the stories are, in a sense, derivative of his work on the languages. But we can't let that lock us into imagining that the languages are already set, right? And the story is just built on top of what is a very firm linguistic foundation, right? Conceptually... It's a firm foundation. That is, the concept that the Elvish languages are the foundation is firm, right? But the language itself is not firm. Uh, and he is making changes and, 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 and rethinking the different names um, 
all the time. Jennifer, I agree. He's discovering the meaning of these words, right, as he goes along. And the languages, therefore, are changing and growing and developing along with the story as he goes. And that's just, it's just, it's cool to see. And it's good to remember that that's, uh, that that's in fact how it does seem to work. It's all a very, a very organic and interwoven thing uh, in his mind. Anyway, okay. So next thing I want to talk about, uh, two passages that I found very, very interesting in terms of tone. Uh, and this is, uh, both of them involve Theoden. The first is Gandalf's crushing remark uh, to, uh, uh, you know, Gandalf like, uh, you know, what's the difference between Gandalf and uh, Lobelia Sackville Baggins, right? Gandalf thinks of the really crushing remark and he doesn't have to wait and come back and say it later. Um, it is long since you listened to tales by the fireside, answered Gandalf, and in that rather than in white hairs you show your age without increase in wisdom. There are children in your land that out of the twisted threads of many stories could have picked the answer to your question at a glance. Here comes an ent, an ent out of Fangorn that your tongue calls the Entwood. Did you think the name was given only an idle fancy? Nay, Theoden, it is otherwise. To them you are but the passing tale. All the years from Errol the Young to Theoden the Old are of little count to them. Oh, the burn! Right? I mean, this is... Uh, this sounds really harsh, right? And Christopher comments on how harsh this is, right? What was, what was the word he used? Devastating, right? I, I'm forgetting the exact word Christopher used. But he acknowledges that this is, this is tough love uh, from Gandalf here. Um, but, see, Yana, I agree. I, I read this a little differently than, um, than I think... Christopher, maybe Christopher isn't reading it differently, but he made it sound like he was, right? He made it sound like he, re- he that that he, Christopher, was reading this as Gandalf just being, just harshing on Theoden, right? But I don't think so. I agree with Yana and, and I think with Kate here that um, uh, Gandalf is joking, right? Um, as Yana says it, Gandalf is treating Theoden like he might treat Pippin. Um, this is hobbitry. Remember, uh, you know, uh, smashing insults are, that's how you relate to friends, right? That's how you, uh, uh, that's, that's, that's how you can tell somebody likes you, right? Is, uh, if they insult you in a particularly, uh, exaggerated and personal way, right? Um, and yeah, Tony, you're right that there is a trend of this, uh, a, a general trend of, Tolkien often sort of initially going too far with the this sort of insulting uh, raillery or banter between characters and then kind of dialing it back. We've seen him do that on several occasions. Um, but, um, but here, of course, it's particularly striking because although some of this is there, the sting is taken almost completely out of it, right? Um, even... Uh, there are children in your land that out of the twisted threads of many stories could have picked the answer to your question, says Gandalf, right? Um, when he says that in the published text, he's just saying to Theoden, think back to childhood. If you think back to stories you heard in, in the nursery, you might be able to think of the answer to your question yourself, right? 
the at a glance at the end turns that whole statement into an unfavorable comparison between Theoden and children, right? There are children who could figure it out at a glance, but you're obviously too dumb, right, to figure it out yourself. Um, yeah, but again, this is um, this is this is totally standard stuff, right? Totally standard stuff. Like it's uh, if Mary or Pippin said this something just like this to each other, nobody would have been offended, right? This would have been a mutually understood expression of affection, right? Um, so the, um, the, the, the thing that I think is fascinating about this is, A, that his first impulse was to have Gandalf relate to Theoden in this way. That his first impulse is to make Gandalf and Theoden, at this point now, pals, right? They're, pa- they're buddies. So Gandalf comes in and he is uh, resisted, right? By the, he's disliked by Theoden. <clears throat> his name is not a passport to the king's favor, right? Um, and, and then he sets Theoden free, right? He, he, he heals Theoden and Theoden is grateful and now they're allies, uh, then there's the moment of doubt, right, when Gandalf just goes herring off on Shadowfax without a word of explanation. And it and, and, it, and I was talking last time about how Tolkien seems to be setting up that sort of increased trial of faith by Theoden, right? Is he going to trust Gandalf? It looks pretty bad, right? Look, at he's heading up to Isaac. Those wizards are colluding together, right? Um, it looks pretty bad. And Theoden admits to doubting, right, before the dawn, but then... Gandalf is justified, and now they're buddies, right? So now they go from, you know, they're having passed that trial of faith, now they're, now they're pals, right? Um, and, uh, and then he, 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 he goes back from that. And uh, Tony, I, I, it does seem to be to say more about their relationship, right? That he decides to put their relationship on a, on a different footing entirely, right? Um, that it's always going to be one of familiarity, right? Even in a sense, perhaps of affection, but but it's going to be formal. It's going to be it's going to be grave, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think there's also a little bit more to it. I mean, I think that that's true. I think that we can see Tolkien deciding that Gandalf and Theoden should have a very different relationship. Um, but I think it's also a suggestion of a change in Theoden's character itself. This is just Gandalf. We don't have Th- we don't see Theoden firing back at Gandalf, right? In a in, in a suitably inappropriate with with a um, with a a suitably uh, insulting rejoin rejoinder, right? Like for instance, the one that Mary gives to um, uh, to. To Frodo, right? That was a that was an insult, if you like, right? Um, it was a compliment, and therefore, of course, not true. Anyway, um, so it's not just that; it's also that Theoden's character itself seems to be different. Um, I loved this passage. Pippin's first observation and its effect on the riders went thus. Here we are, sitting on the field of victory amid the plundered ruins of an arsenal, and you wonder where we came by this and that. All those of the riders that were near laughed, and none more loudly than Theoden. The Theoden laughs upright. The laughter of Theoden, right? 
He laughs louder than everybody else at this, right? Christopher comments, Theoden's loud laughter remained into the completed manuscript, but then his gravity, at least of bearing, was restored and it was removed. The dialogue concerning hobbits went like this in the draft. This day is fated to be filled with marvels, for here I see alive yet others of the folk of story, the half-high. Hobbits, if you please, lord, said Pippin. Hobbits, said Theoden. Hoppeton? I will try to remember. No tale that I have heard does them justice. Now, uh, Christopher goes on to say two things from this, right? He goes on, of course, to talk about the Holbitlan. Uh, and the, the, you know, that sort of, you know, the, the uh, etymology of Hobbit that Tolkien will eventually go on to invent. Um, and how he's not there yet, right? Um, but I'm always really cautious saying this because I feel that I'm very likely to be wrong. But I think that this went totally over Christopher's head, right? That is... I think that Christopher is thinking too seriously about etymologies and thinking about the Holbitlan, and I think he's missing the point. Theoden is making a joke, right? Theoden, right? Christopher tells us what hapatan means. It's a verb in Anglo-Saxon, and it means to hop or leap, especially to hop or leap for joy, right? I don't think when Theoden in this first draft says hobbits, Hapatan, right? I don't think this is Theoden, the amateur philologist, guessing at what the root word in his own language of the word hobbit is. That is what's going to happen eventually, right? Um, you know, the ones that we call the Holbitlan? Yes, that's where he's going to get to. But I don't think that's what happens here. I think Mr. I'm laughing louder than anybody else is making a joke at Pippin's expense. He's making a pun, with a word from his language that sounds like Hobbit, but is comical in the context, right? You call yourself Hobbits? You call yourselves those that leap around and jump for joy? right? And it's kind of an affectionate joke, right? It's sort of a charming joke, right? It's sort of like, ah, this is how you are characterizing yourself. But I think it... The sense that I get is that it's genuinely intended by Theoden to be a joke. Like he's he's trying to he's he's making a funny. Uh, <laughs> Arthur Harrow, our our the Mythgard Academy king of puns, says that you know points out that having now that he's seen Theoden making a pun, he can die happy. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. I think that Theoden is making a pun. That's exactly what he's doing. Um. Uh. So yeah, it's. And to, to me, this passage corresponds with the previous one, right? Um, that, again, I think that we do see the different initial conception of Gandalf's attitude towards Theoden, right? That he treated is treating him as more of a chum that he can joke with and therefore comically insult. Um, but it's not just that. I think, clearly, I think that Theoden himself, the initial conception seemed to be having made Theoden what he was, Right? Um, you know, oppressed and, and depressed <laughs> both at the same time, right? Uh, the way that his spirit was borne down before, uh, having the sunshine of his personality, right, be much more radiant by contrast, um, it really, it really uh, uh, accentuates, really expands the contrast between, you know, 
spiritually crushed Theoden before. And, you know, joyful, happy, pun-making Theoden um, that we actually get afterwards and after the battle, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Jennifer says it, uh, it's it's funny because, of course, Hobbiton sounds almost exactly like Hobbiton, you know, their hometown, Frodo's hometown, right? Um, yeah, I, Jennifer, I, it's, it's, it's an awesome pun, right? It works really, really well, better even than Theoden knows, right? Um, yeah, so Tony, I agree. Gandalf will still make jokes, right? That, that, he's not going to expunge that from Gandalf's character, and he has got a long, Gandalf has a long, uh, a long history, right? Going all the way back into the Hobbit of, um, you know, being willing not only to uh, to to make jokes with people, but to insult people, and we've seen him engage in you know hobbitry and raillery with the hobbits uh, before. He apparently is going to decide, as Christopher suggests, that uh, 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 Theoden is going to be more grave in character. Right? He's going to be not. Um, uh, he, he'll he still be warm, he'll still be friendly, uh, uh, he'll still be gracious, but he won't be comical, right? He won't make puns, uh, and he won't be the one who laughs louder than everybody else. Um, uh, I think it's, uh, uh, I don't know, I kind of like punning Theoden, I have to admit. The Hopaton pun, I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure that that would play. You'd have to know what it means, right? Uh, you'd need at least a footnote in order to get the joke there. I'm not sure that that necessarily is the most effective joke at the end of the day, but I love the concept, right? I love the idea. Um, anyway, so there's uh, 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 a really fascinating to me shift in Theoden's character that we got from this first uh, version to the final version. Okay, let's get on to the really important stuff. Uh, that is pipeweed. They hasten and enter Nangurunir. There they find a heap at ruins. The great walls of Isengard were burst and flung down in confusion. Only the Tower of Orthanc stood alone in the midst of desolation from which a great smoke went up. The great arch still stands, but a pile of rubble stands before it. On the top of the pile sat Merry and Pippin, having lunch. They jumped up, and as Pippin still had his mouth full, as Pippin had his mouth full, Merry spoke. Welcome, lords, to Isengard, he said. We are the door wardens. Meriadoc, son of Caradoc of Buckland, is my name, and my companion is Peregrine, son of Paladin of Tuckborough. Far in the north is our home. The Lord Saruman is within, but, alas, he is indisposed and unable to receive guests. Changed to, but at the moment he is closeted with one worm tongue discussing urgent business. It is possible that we could help in the debate, laughed Gandalf. But where is Treebeard? I have no time to jest with young hobbits. So we find you at last, said Aragorn. You have given us a long journey. Okay. One of the things uh, that uh, I think is really neat about this scene, just one thing kind of to notice here, I was really struck by the way uh, in which this moment, this you know, there seemed to be, you know, I talked before about Tolkien's... Um, uh, process, right? And how he's kind of discovering, you know, he has the general 
kind of the general outline, but he's sort of discovering things as he goes along. He does seem to have these sort of glimpses, right? These moments, um, almost in the way that C.S. Lewis describes, like those pictures, those mental pictures that he has, right? Of the you know fawn carrying parcels with the umbrella in the snow, and 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 you know not really understanding its significance or whatever. Um, not quite as extreme as C.S. Lewis describes his own experience of that, but this scene is clearly an iconic scene for Tolkien, right? Christopher's comments and the evidence that we see in the manuscript, a lot was uncertain, right? A lot was, uh, you know, uh, kind of works itself out in different ways. But this tableau of them arriving at ruined, you know, at the ruins of Orthanc and finding the hobbits having lunch on the, on the, 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 the pile of rubble is sort of the central concept of this entire, of this entire Part, right of this entire scene, this is the this is the fulcrum around which everything else in these chapters is clearly going to pivot. Um, yeah, and it's 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 a wonderful uh, uh, comic element here, right? I mean, as Craig points out, um, halflings as as wardens for Ents is a really comical idea, right? Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, you know the the mockery of of Saruman is really sort of rich uh, and uh, and fun here. Um, uh, yeah, so this this moment, uh, the the this manner of the reunion of the companions, um, this this uh, uh, as the central scene bringing these plots back together um, was clearly the thing that he was that he was fixed on here and everything else shifts around it. But of course, where we immediately go, uh, almost immediately is pipeweed. And it's been a while since we've had something like this. Remember we, we saw this kind of thing a little bit more often back in the, the, um, I was about to say the shadow of the past, the return of the shadow, right? Um, in the early phases of the Fellowship of the Ring manuscript when he uh, uh, would kind of stumble across something. Remember the conversation, the long conversation as uh, they were crossing the Shire, as the hobbits, you know, who were different, you know, of course, were crossing the Shire, and the, the long discussion about hobbit architecture and throwing dirty dishes out of upstairs windows, right? Uh, <laughs> that really long discussion, like, while a black rider was chasing them and everything. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, this is kind of like that, right? Where we see something that begins as dialogue and then he gets totally carried away in his world building, right? And then realizes, okay, uh, I think I need to take this out. And of course, both of those passages end up getting shoved into the prologue. Um, uh, but anyway, it's fun to see this, uh, to see this develop. Uh, maybe not, says Mary, of course, in response to uh, Theoden saying that he didn't realize that they uh, breathed smoke. We only learned the pleasure of it a few generations back. It is said that Elias Tobiason of Mugworth brought the weed back to Manor Hall in the South Farthing. He was a much-traveled hobbit. He planted it in his garden and dried the leaves after a fashion he had learned in some far country. We never knew where, for he was no good at geography and never could remember names. But from the tale of leagues that he reckoned on his fingers, people calculated that it was far south, twelve hundred miles or more from Manor Hall. That is a lot of leagues to reckon on your fingers. Here is written Longbottom. 
In the far south, it is said that men drink smoke. So this is Theoden, I assume, interjecting in the middle. In the far south, it is said that men drink smoke, and wizards, I have heard, do so. But always I had thought it was part of their incantations, or a process aiding in the weaving of their deep thoughts. My lord, said Mary, it is rest and pleasure and the crown of the feast. And glad I am that wizards know it. Among the wreckage floating on the water that drowned Isengard, we found two kegs, and opening them, what should we discover but some of the finest leaf that ever I fingered or set nose to? Good enough is the manor hall leaf, but this is... something. It smells like the stuff Gandalf would smoke at times when he returned from journeys, though often he was glad enough to come down to manor hall. Uh, we only learned the pleasure of it... Uh, sorry. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, that's, a, that's a mistake there. Um, uh, right. Uh, though often he was glad enough to come down to Manor Hall. That should be where it ends. My apologies there. Um, okay. Um, lots of really interesting things here, right? The number one, the biggest shift, right, is that the initial conception of the initial conception of pipeweed is that the South Farthing pipeweed is derivative and inferior, right? The best pipeweed comes from somewhere far away. Gandalf gets the good stuff, right? When Gandalf is off traveling, he acquires the good stuff and he brings it back with him. So when you, when you smoke with Gandalf when he first comes back to the Shire, when he's still smoking the stuff that he got from far down in the South... His, his pipeweed is better, clearly better, right? But if after he's been hanging out in the Shire a while and he's smoked all of his own, right, then he, uh, he's happy enough to come down to Manor Hall and, uh, and uh, pick up, uh, pick up some, some Hobbit stuff, right? Um, yeah, so, uh, so that's one thing, right? That although Hobbits are obviously very fond of smoking, and uh, uh, sort of associate it with themselves, they view it as something that is only happened recently and which they themselves are have a conscious memory of importing from far away, right? This changes the status of smoking very significantly. And... and, and through by doing that, it changes the whole sense of Hobbit culture and Hobbits' awareness of their own history very significantly, right? Um, think about how it works, the history of smoking, in the published text, right? In the published text, we have the best leaf in the world is long bottom leaf, right? Uh, from old Toby, who's not yet old Toby, right? His dad is Toby, but he is Elias. Um, anyway, so we have, um, um, we have the, so in, again, the published version, Longbottom Leaf is the best tobacco, best pipeweed. Um, it originally came to the Shire from Bree. The Bree people originally got it from downside. It grows wild in Gondor. So presumably it came from Gondor, and the theory is that it was brought by the Numenorians from across the sea, right? So tobacco was originally a Numenorian plant imported to Middle-earth from Numenor, and then eventually it migrates and makes its way up to the Shire. Um, but the people of the Shire invent smoking, 
right? They they dry it and burn it and smoke it, and they're the ones who thought of that. Even smoking by wizards is derivative of hobbit practice, right? The only reason that wizards smoke is that Gandalf learned how to smoke from hobbits, and Saruman learned how to smoke from Gandalf and in, and in, in imitation of Gandalf. Again, that's the, that's the published version, right? And notice how this fits in with the picture of Hobbit culture that we see, right? Notice how this history of smoking serves as a kind of a snapshot for the cultural heritage of the Shire, right? The overall framework of Hobbit society is derived ultimately from the Numenorians and through them from the elves, right? This is true of their architecture, and this is true of their herb lore as well, right? The tobacco, which is the sign- this sort of signature element of Hobbit culture, is something that they have inherited from the great societies of old, just like their laws, for instance, right? Which they get, which are the, 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 the laws ancient and just, which derive from the rule of the Numenorean kings of Arnor, right? So... In several ways, we can... So again, the this, this smoking thing shows this, this sort of snapshot into the cultural heritage of the hobbits. Their culture is derivative. Many of the fundamental frameworks, their architecture, their laws, their, uh, their herbs, right, their, their, their tobacco, they get from the Numenorians, and yet they have developed their own thing, right? Although the materials that they use, the tobacco itself, is of Numenorean origin, what they do with it is entirely characteristic, right? They invented smoking. Um, so Hobbit culture is special. It's unique. Uh, it has its own flair and, and is, is sort of is, is, is cool and desirable in its own way. Even though it's built on, so so the 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 hobbits therefore in hobbit culture are, you know, they're dwarves standing on the shoulders of giants, right? But they stand on their own, right? They do stand. They do have. They do make some contributions. But uh, uh, even though they, even though they're, they're you know, they, there are those giants upon whose shoulders they're standing. Um, but that's not the original conception, right? The original conception of smoking is much more thoroughly derivative. They only get tobacco because it's brought to them, not through Bree, so it's not just this sort of slow derivation of culture uh, progressively and, and, and working backwards in time. It's a direct borrowing from the far south, right? From the like greater Gondor region, right? That's where... Elias Tobiasen went himself and brought the leaf back. And not only that, but he learned how to dry them in that far country as well. Um, so, and the best, the better pipe weed is grown elsewhere, and the wizards know how to smoke it, right? And they, so that, so Gandalf and Saruman have this sort of more direct access. Um, in the smoking practices of wizards, both in the tobacco that they smoke, and in uh, their learning of smoking, they are the originals, and the hobbits are merely derivative, are merely smaller shadows of that. So the characterization of hobbit society, again, based on the little snapshot of of the history of smoking, um, is quite different, right? It's not, it doesn't have that sort of, that specialness, that dwarves on the shoulders of giants sense. It's merely, it's just the dwarf, right? It's just uh, uh, borrowing 
a, a culture that is that is borrowing um, uh, from the other greater culture. Um, so the one that he's going to develop is going is I think a much more interesting and a much more complicated kind of cultural situation. Um, yeah, and uh, and but Yana, you're right. The story of you know old well it's old EUI instead of old Toby, right? Um, the story old Toby's kind of lame as a character in contrast, right? So the old version of the story is much more dramatic. Right, Elias Tobiasin. Although I agree with you, Carrie. Um, wait, no, was it Carrie who said that? No, it was Rachel. Sorry, I agree with Rachel, uh, who said that it it, it 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 would be quite a feat to be a well-traveled hobbit and yet be no good at geography and still make it home. Right, I agree. Uh, it's a it's a curious combination. But anyway. Um, he goes on this epic journey, right? 1,200 miles or more and brings back the tobacco from the source way down in a far country in the south. He comes back with this exotic plant and this exotic preparation technique, both of which he's learned in a far distant country and imports that into the Shire and then they imitate it, right? And so they have their uh, their derivative uh, leaf and their derivative smoking, neither of which presumably is quite the same, quite as good uh, as the wizards who are sort of tapped into the original there. So, so Yana, I agree that Elias's story is much more sensational than Toby's story, who just, as you say, Yana, wandered over to Bree one day, right, and brought the stuff back from Bree. Um, but, uh, um, but it's interesting to me that as the story of old Toby, as he becomes, gets to be a smaller story in itself, right? His accomplishment is a, is a much more modest accomplishment compared to Elias's. And yet that actually serves to elevate Hobbit society. It, it puts Hobbit society in a different and I think a much more attractive place. And that's kind of interesting, actually. Um, Okay, so I thank you for bearing with me in my long disquisition on the history of smoking, but I do think uh, that it does, it serves as a really fascinating snapshot of Tolkien's world building and how he's conceiving Hobbit society here. Um, Aragorn has this to add. True enough, I guess. Bree folk smoked long before Shire folk, and, f- and the reason is not far to seek. Rangers come there, as you may remember, unless you have already forgotten Trotter the Ranger. And it was Rangers, as they call them in Bree, and neither wizard nor dwarf, who brought the art to the north, and found plants that would thrive in sheltered places. For the plant does not belong there. It is said that far away in the east and south it grows wild, and is larger and richer in leaf, but some hold that it was brought over the sea. I suspect Saruman got his leaf by trade, for he had little knowledge or care for growing things, though in old days the warm valley of Nangurunir would have would have been made to grow a good crop. That is, before, like, he... It was all blasted and uh, stony and, you know, marked with chains and stuff. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> James, James Lebeck says that, uh, uh, he's going to relegate my speech on, uh, the smoke history of smoking to the, to the forward. Yeah, fair enough. Um, okay. Now, so first of all, I should have said this passage that I'm, that I'm quoting here, uh, comes from a later version. So that the, the one we were just reading about Elias Tobiasin 
is the first version, right? This is already a revision. And in this version, we've already shifted the guy who will become old Toby from being of a much traveled hobbit to being not, not a, a great traveler. Right. Um, and so we have him bringing the leaf back from Bree already now, rather than having him going himself all the way down to Gondor. And so Aragorn is the one who then fills in, um, fills in the gaps, right. Uh, about, um, uh, about the tobacco. And so notice again, how this still serves at this point to, there is still no distinction for hobbits, but rather they are, they are placed. So it's significant that Aragorn is still placing them in the sort of cultural genealogy of Numenor, right? Um, he traces it backward very clearly. Numenor to Gondor, from Gondor into the north by the rangers, and wizards and dwarves picked it up from the rangers after they brought it, it being both the leaf and the pract- and the art of smoking, right? to the north, and from there, finally, to the hobbits. So the hobbits are the end of the genealogical chain, right? Uh, cultural genealogy, right? Um, the hobbits are the the last people to get smoking, right? Um, so it shows them as, you know, they are a sort of a cultural offspring of Numenor. It places them there pretty clearly. And that's nice. That's fun. I mean, that's that that does, in a sense, kind of elevate them. Um, but they're still they're not still not contributing anything themselves. Right here we have an even more thoroughly derivative view, right, uh, of hobbits and where they fit in connection with these other societies. Of course, the other really important element in this uh, passage is, uh, and, which, and we can see this in other passages as well, where does Saruman get his leaf? Back in the old days, he might have grown it himself in Nankuranir, but uh, he's not doing that now. He got it by trade. From where? Gondor or somewhere, we're not told. Right, but certainly not from South Farthing, and the leaf that they get from the barrels is not South Farthing leaf. You can tell because it's way better than South Farthing leaf, right? Um, so again, we have the derivative and scaled down version of Hobbit stuff. The leaf that they smoke is only a pale reflection of the true leaf, right? But also, we are not yet setting up the scouring of the Shire. Remember, we had a couple hints. That he was going to be, um, he was going to be sent. Mary was going to he he was going to send Mary back after the Council of Elrond, right? Because there was going to be something for him to do. He he had some vague sense of a of of a further story that was going to go on back in the Shire, and so we were looking at that as like the very first hints of the scouring to come. Um, this seems to me very clear evidence that Saruman's role in the scouring of the Shire is not conceived yet, right? Um, we don't have any uh, any hint of a connection there. Um, so if we're wondering, you know, when does he have, when does he get the idea with Saruman, it is clearly, it is clearly not yet. Um, and yeah, Carrie, you're absolutely right. The, the most likely 
where did the Numenorians get tobacco, right? We only trace it back to Numenor, but it probably did come from Elvenholm before that, right? Tobacco is literally the plant of the gods, right? No question. So you've got like Malorn trees and the white tree of Gondor and tobacco and Athelus, right? All of that stuff is uh, stuff imported, you know, by many channels through from Valinor. So, uh, so yeah, absolutely. Um, no, see, Yana, it's not Tolkien acknowledging the New World origin of tobacco. It's Tolkien transforming the New World origin of tobacco, right? Um, it's like the difference between, the, you know, the Imram, the stories of the Imram journeys, you know, like the journey of, of, of St. Brendan um, going to the other world, right? Uh, contrasting with the comparative letdown of the voyage into the West, which results in merely going to America, Right. Uh, think of what he says about the Brazils. Right. In uh, in uh, in on fairy stories. Um, so, yeah, Yana, we have exactly that kind of a transformation. Right. Uh, uh, you know, Sir Walter Raleigh might bring tobacco home from America. Right. From North America. Um, but that is merely, you know, a pale echo of the of tobacco coming from Valinor through Numenor. Right. Um yeah, yeah. So absolutely, Kate, pipeweed is an herb sort of blessed and designed by Yavanna herself, right? I mean, obviously it is, right? Um, yeah, cool. Okay, let's move on to talking about wizards. Don't have that much time, but we'll say, uh, we'll, we'll at least start our discussion of Gandalf and Saruman here. Um, okay. Uh, this is from an outline here. Gandalf's speech with Saruman. He rides over flooded causeway. Saruman looks out of window above door, asks how he dares to come without permission. Gandalf says he thought that as far as Saruman was concerned, he was still a lodger in Orthanc. Guests that leave from the roof have not always a claim to come in by the door. Saruman refused to repent or submit. Okay, I find this outline a little bit hard to follow. Um... So let me try to let me try to sort it out here. Okay, so first of all, the confrontation is just Gandalf and Saruman, right? We don't get any of the stuff with Theoden or Aemir or Gimli or any of those other things, right? Pippin. So this is his 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 outline, his concept here. The business end of this discussion is Gandalf and Saruman, right? So how does their conversation go? Um, Saruman asks Gandalf how he dares to come without permission. So Saruman's response, his first ploy, is to pull rank, to assert rank on Gandalf. I did not give you permission to come. right? So here is Saruman speaking very confidently from within his tower in the midst of his ruined stronghold after his armies have all been defeated. right? So he's lost, and yet he's still putting up a really bold front. right? How dare you come here without permission? And Gandalf's response is not to meet authority with authority, right? Um, as far as Saruman was concerned, he's still a lodger. And was like, what are you, permission, right? Well, as far as you're concerned, aren't I still your lodger, right? You took me in and, uh, you know, you, you come without permission. I have permission, right? Wasn't I invited in last time? Wasn't I invited to stay last time? And as I recall... When I left, you hadn't revoked your invitation to me to stay, 
right? So therefore, your invitation still stands, and so therefore, right? So this is kind of a burn again, right? But it's a little indirect. It's a little complicated, right? Um, it certainly is Gandalf very indirectly calling Saruman on his previous treachery, right? Recalling, you know, saying, uh, re- ref- refuting, rebuffing Saruman's assertion of authority by reminding Saruman of his own, of his own treachery before, right? Um, traitors don't get to talk to me like that would be one way of kind of paraphrasing what Gandalf is saying, though it's much more complicated than that. Saruman, uh, right, okay, the guests that leave from the roof have not always a claim to come in by the door. That's got to be Saruman speaking. It's got to be Saruman's rebuttal, right? Guests that leave from the roof have not always a claim to come in by the door. Uh, So Saruman's response, therefore, is to say... Um, is to characterize Gandalf. So leaving from the roof and coming in from the door, is he characterizing Gandalf as a burglar there, right? Um, You know, it's impolite to leave a house uh, uh, from the roof, right? Uh, To sneak stealthily out of a, a house to which you've been invited as a guest, right? Um... And if you do that, right, if you sneak out of the, if, if, if you crawl out through the roof, you may not be invited to come back in through the door, right? Um, okay. I mean, I see how that sort of works by, you know, Saruman again trying to wrongfoot Gandalf, right? Trying to just again boldly play it off as if he doesn't have anything to be ashamed of. Almost trying to make it sound as if Gandalf's departure, Gandalf's escape, was disgraceful, right? Um, and that, by the way, is quite similar to what Saruman is going to still do in the published text, right? Remember how he suggests to Gandalf that Gandalf misunderstood him willfully, right? Um, you know, he, he sought to advise him for his good. You know, he, he tries to, I totally didn't betray you, right? What, oh, what, I'd take you prisoner? No, 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 I wasn't taking you prisoner, right? You were my guest and then treated me shabbily. That seems to be the direction that Saruman is trying to push things here uh, to try to see. Uh, exactly. I'm not the traitor you are, right? Um, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> Seems to be uh, Saruman's rebuttal here uh, to Gandalf's highly indirect accusation of treachery there. Um, and then we just have that Saruman refuses to repent or submit. So we have this kind of bantering conversation between them. Um, And this obviously is not the whole thing. This is an outline, and as we see, certain lines of dialogue are kind of floating into the outline. We've seen that lots of times before. Um, But then we get, let's go right to the long and the short of it, the result of the conversation is that Saruman refused to repent or submit. So um, no progress is made, right? Nothing really happens. Nothing is really accomplished in the confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman. And what leads up to it is merely this kind of sort of banter back and forth, right? Um, And that's fascinating, right? Fascinating that they're confronting each other on these grounds. Um, uh, (laughs) Josiah says, real wizards don't throw fireballs, they throw shade. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, 
But exactly, Josiah, there is no confrontation of power here. There is that initial assertion of authority by Saruman, but there's this is not this is not a this is not a a power or authority confrontation, and it's totally it seems to be totally inconclusive. Saruman refused to repent or submit. That seems to be what Gandalf was going for, right? Gandalf confronts him in order in the hopes that he will repent and or submit, and he refuses to do it. So they leave again, right? Um, what conclusions can we draw from this? One clear conclusion, Gandalf still not yet at the stature that he's going to be later on, right? Um, this is miles away from Saruman, your staff is broken. Um, Gandalf banters with him at first in the published text, right? But the gloves come off after a while, and he, uh, uh, he lays it down for Saruman uh, at the end and breaks his staff, and that's a, a super big deal. But then we're thinking through Saruman's situation. Theoden thinks a Nazgul may carry him off. Let him, says Gandalf. If Saruman thinks of that last treachery, uh, something cannot pity him for the terrible fate that awaits him. Mordor can have no love for him. Indeed, what he will do. Okay, so Saruman has betrayed Sauron, right? And Gandalf has no pity for him. Say that this must be clear to Saruman himself. Would it not be more dramatic to make Saruman offer help? Gandalf says no. He knows that if Mordor wins, he is done for now. He, Saruman, is done for now. Even the evidence that he had made war on us won't help him. Sauron knows that he did so only for his own ends. But if we win, with his belated help, he hopes to reestablish himself and escape punishment. Gandalf demands his staff of office. He refuses. Then Gandalf orders him to be shut up as above. They rest the night in the ruins and ride back to Edoras. Feast on evening of return and coming of the messenger, that ominous dark visage man should end this chapter. So the coming of the dude with the red arrow is supposed to be the end of the chapter, right? Anyway, okay. Um, so we're not only going to get back to, to Edoras, or excuse me, to Eodorus. We're going to uh, we're going to get back there in time to also then transition into the uh, the Gondor movement at the end of this. Okay, so yeah, this is a little complicated. We see Tolkien, I think, here considering other options, you know, multiple options here. Um, Saruman is going to refuse uh, to submit, right? But might he try? to come over to their side, right? Uh, to try to reestablish himself and escape punishment, right? Um, that seems to be an active possibility um, because he, Saruman, might realize that he's he's in trouble with Mordor anyway, right? If he holds out and refuses Theoden and Gandalf... No matter what happens, he's in trouble, right? Obviously, Theoden and Gandalf see him as their enemy. Sauron's going to see him as his enemy, too. If Sauron wins, it's not going to help that there's evidence that he made war on Sauron's enemies, right? Because Sauron's going to know his motivations. So that's no good, right? If that were the situation, 
then it does make sense that Saruman would say, okay, hang on. My holding out and, and resisting them is a no-win situation. Um, whichever side wins, my outlook is poor. So um, instead I'm going to maybe turn coat and pretend to repent in order to try to escape. So then at least if the good guys win, I'll still be in a better position and maybe they won't punish me. Right. Um, yeah. Kate, I think I agree with you. I think that that's what happens. Uh, you know, Kate was pointing out how interesting it is that we shift from Gandalf's dialogue to what sounds like sort of Tolkien talking to himself, you know, uh, uh, back into summary of what the plot should be. Yeah, I, I agree. It does. It does sound like that. Um, uh, so. So yeah, we're not really sure exactly what Saruman's, as you know, as Tolkien is trying to think through what would Saruman do, right? How would Saruman, knowing how cunning Saruman is, how would in fact he act under these circumstances? Um, Later on, in a, in, in a further draft, we can see Aragorn laying it out a little bit more clearly. Gandalf ought not to have much difficulty in convincing him that a victory for Mordor would not be pleasant for him now. Indeed, and here Aragorn lowered his voice, I do not see what can save him except the ring itself. It is well that he has no idea where it is, and we should do best never to mention it aloud. I do not know what powers Saruman in his tower may have, nor what means of communication with the East there may be. From your tale it is plain that he thought one of you was possibly the ring-bearer, and Sauron must therefore have the same doubt. If so, it will hasten his attack westward. Isengard has fallen none too soon. But there are some hopeful points. All this doubt may help poor Frodo and Sam. But at any rate, Saruman is in a cleft stick of his own cutting. Okay, so uh, the application here to the issue of the ring, I think that everything that Aragorn says here is still pretty much in force in the published text, right? Um, But it's not explicitly said. And so it's really interesting to see him sort of working this out. The only thing that can save Saruman is the ring. And that business about him doubting, him still doubting, as far, and, and, and I'd never really thought about this before, but as far as Saruman knows, when he's looking down and seeing Merry and Pippin, they might be carrying the Ring of Power right there. Right? As far, uh, for all he knows, the ring might be there in Isengard at that confrontation. Right? And I'd never, I mean, I, you know, uh, might be kind of thick, but I never really thought of that before, right? And the urgency of saying, let's make sure that nobody gives away the fact that you're not the ring. We, we've got to let, we've got to make sure that Saruman keeps thinking that, right? And here's another thing that, again, I think is still in force in the published text, but which, again, this, this sort of explicit discussion really brought much more to the surface for me was, remember in the last debate of the captains uh, after the Battle of Pelennor Field? When, the, when Gandalf explains what Saruman, what Sa- Sauron, rather, is expecting, right? Um, Sauron knows that the good guys have the ring. 
Gandalf says that Sauron is never going to even imagine that they're going to want to destroy it, because that's not what he would do. He can't conceive of anybody having access to that possibility of power and not using it, right? So therefore, what does Sauron expect? He expects one of them is going to claim it, right? Gandalf is going to claim it, or Galadriel is going to claim it, or Elrond is going to claim it, or Aragorn is going to claim it, right? Um, I guess Kierden the Shipwright would be kind of a dark horse candidate, right, to claim the Ring of Power. But there are there are people who could claim it. Denethor could claim it, right? The suggestion is that Denethor actually could wield the ring. Saruman could certainly claim it. Um, anyway, so Sauron expects one of the captains of the good guys is going to get the ring uh, and is going to claim it. And how will he know? How will Sauron know? What, by what sign will he know for sure not only that the Ring of Power is with the captains, but which one of them has claimed it? How will he know? He will expect, Gandalf says, a time of debate, right? A struggle. Because, of course, only one at a time can wield the one, and Sauron assumes they're all going to want it, Right? Uh, you know, he's not expecting everybody to turn it down. He's expecting everyone's going to want it, right? Faramir's going to want it. Denethor's going to want it. Galadriel's going to want it. Right? Of course everybody's going to want it. Aragorn's going to want it. So one of them is going to get it, and they're going to be fighting against the others to put it down. That's what he's looking for, right? This passage reminds me that, what does he see, right? What has just happened? The downfall of Isengard. Um... Mightn't Sauron the I'd always thought of sort of the urgency of Sauron's reaction to not only the treason of Isengard, but of the apparent like when he thinks Pippin is in Isengard looking in the stone, right? Um that the very real chance that Saruman had the ring, that he acquired the ring of power, and that the reason there was a battle and the reason Isengard has been overthrown is that the ring has been reclaimed from Saruman. That's why they attacked Saruman in the first place, right? Because he had the ring of power and they wanted it, right? So here's Sauron thinking Saruman got the ring and now they've taken it. And then what happens next? What happens? Aragorn looks in the in the stone and defies him and shows him the sword, right? Oh, dead giveaway. Okay, so so what happened was, in Sauron's mind, right, what happened was Saruman caught the ring bearer, claimed the ring for himself, then, the, then Aragorn and his army took down Isengard, and now Aragorn obviously has claimed the ring himself, and that's why he looks into the Palantir, right? The whole narrative fits together so neatly, right? And again, it's it's it, all of this stuff is there to be figured out uh, by somebody smarter than me. But I never really thought it through quite fully in that way. But this watching Tolkien think through this in more explicit detail about how uh, about the, the 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 fact that Saruman thinks that the ring is there and the the whole the active deception of Saruman and through Saruman Sauron that the halflings involved out there with me, you know, Merry and Pippin, 
that they are one of them is the ring bearer. In fact, you know the active uh, deception there um, seemed to me a really really important point. And uh, Jennifer, as you pointed out before, no Palantir, right? Um, Aragorn doesn't know what the means of communication was, and it seems like Tolkien doesn't know what the means of communication was either, right? No Palantir at all in sight yet. Okay. Um, let's stop here. I like a couple more passages about Saruman, but this is a good place to stop. Um, we'll go on and say a few things about Saruman, uh, move on to Ents a little bit too. We're getting behind, which is totally fine. Absolutely to be expected and nothing to be alarmed about. Um, so I'm going to stop there and let you guys go. Thank you for sticking with me. I know it's getting late. Um, remember, no class next week. I'll be away next week, but I'll be back uh, and uh, refreshed and uh, uh, and and uh, uh, very happy week after next. And then... Um, and don't forget, tomorrow night, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie panel discussion at 8.30 p.m. Uh, I look forward to seeing many of you there as we uh, 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 finish, uh, come to the final culmination of our Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy discussion. Thanks, everybody, and I will see you guys in a fortnight. Bye now. <laughs>